the fact that running rewards regularity means that, that then I do it every day. And so then I appreciate that that's sort of built into the structure of running so that then every day I have an excuse to like get outside and, you know, enjoy movement. That was Scott Douglas, and this is the Running on Ohm podcast. I'm your host, Julia Hanlon, and here at Running on Ohm, we dive deep into long-form, unedited conversations with pioneers of the mind-body-spirit connection. Some of the people I bring on for all of you, you may know and revere, and others are undiscovered gems, so thank you for trusting me with your headspace and your heart space. Today's conversation is with Scott Douglas. Scott is a runner, author, and senior content editor at Runner's World Online. The weekend of the 2015 Boston Marathon, I heard Scott speak at a panel alongside the 2014 Boston Marathon winner, Meb Kaflesky, about their book that they wrote together, Meb for Mortals, which shares all of Meb's training secrets. Being the running nerd that I am, I started to follow Scott's work online as he publishes numerous articles a week on Runner's World and other online publications such as The Atlantic, Slate, Outside, and The Washington Post. Scott has a lifelong passion for running, and in this conversation, we dig into lessons he's learned from running and writing. Through his writing, Scott has had the opportunity to interview and study some of the world's best runners. Scott reflects on his time living and training in Iten, Kenya, and offers up some interesting insight from one of the the world's most legendary running cultures. In our conversation, Scott gives you a glimpse into how he's put these lessons into action and in his own life, and will leave you with some surprising takeaways on how to optimize your training. We also talk about the intersection between depression and running, and why running rewards regularity. Yes, this conversation is definitely a running-centric one, but I believe that even if you're not a runner, you can still learn some powerful lessons from Scott on being honest and pursuing your passions with a spirit of curiosity. As always, I love to hear from all of you. Reach out to Scott and I on Twitter, Instagram, and I'd love to know what piece of this conversation actually stuck with you, whether it was a specific story Scott shared or a learning point. I know that thousands of people are tuning into the podcast, but the power for me lies in what you, yes, you take away from them and how you put them into action in your own life. If you tune into Rue regularly and get excited for weekly new episodes, then please consider donating to Rue's Patreon page, where for as little as $2 a month, you get to be a part of an intimate Rue community with insider access into the podcast and exclusive content. So visit patreon.com slash running on them to donate and know that any amount of support helps. A huge thank you to all those who've already joined me on the Patreon journey. I am so grateful. Okay, you ready to dive deep in today's conversation with Scott Douglas. In your life, what what came first for you, running or writing? Um, as something that I did seriously, running. I started running in ninth grade. Um, my high school was, this is how old I am. High school was 10th through 12th grade rather than ninth through 12th grade. Um, and I started running in ninth grade because I knew that I was going to run. I I knew that I was going to go out for the cross country team in 10th grade. And I didn't know that, you know, you don't get cut from cross country. Um, so I wanted to be ready. And so I started running in like March, the spring of ninth grade to be ready for, going after the cross-country team in 10th grade. Um, Writing, I was always, you know, I got good grades in English and was a good writer, but it's not like something I've ever done 
it's not like when I was in high school, I wasn't like writing for the newspaper or anything like that. Um, I just started writing professionally when I needed to, to make money. Yeah. And with running with that cross country team in 10th grade, when you came on, were you pretty prepared? Like, did you have a base? How did you stack oh, up? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I was, I was crazy prepared. Um, I, like my first summer of running, I, th- I thought I invented all these things. Like I thought I invented running twice a day. I thought I invented speed work. Um, I thought I invented long runs, all this sort of stuff, you know, and then I, then I started reading magazines and then, you know, when, when, when cross country started, then I realized like, Oh, okay. I didn't invent all these things, but at least my instincts were right. Um, yeah, I did. Okay. That's so cool. So you didn't, you didn't read any literature during that summer. Not, you just um, did not, not, not initially. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, again, this will show how old I am. I mean, this is 1979. So, you know, there was, there was runner's world, there was running times. Um, and I would, that summer I would started occasionally would take them out of the library and read. And I remember like there was a runner's world article about fartlek and it, you know, was trying to describe, you know, sort of, Oh, it's just free form, you know, and you just go here and you run hard from there to there. And then, and, you know, being somewhat type a at that time of my life, I, I took the, <laughs> I took the magazine with me like to a field and like tried to follow what they were saying to do, which is sort of, sort of con- contrary to the entire spirit of doing a fartlek workout. But, um, but mostly I just sort of just winged it like, um, like running twice a day. I always, what, what did I do? I ran, in the, I ran in the morning or the, I, I think I always ran in the afternoon. Yeah, I always ran in the afternoon. But well, my grandmother was coming to visit, and for some reason, I was told that I couldn't run in the afternoon. I had to run in the morning. I was like, okay, whatever. So I started running in the morning, and then I started realizing, like, in the afternoon, I was like, gosh, I feel like I have enough energy that I could go running again, you know? And so after my grandmother left, I started running twice a day, and I thought, you know, I thought, no, you know, this, I've, I've happened upon this in you know, just incredible training secret. And of course, you know, all good people for however, for decades have run twice a day, but, but I was just sort of made stuff up and then found out that that's what other people do. Yeah. That's so cool. You were kind of tapping into the ancient wisdom of it so organically. Yeah. Did you, what do you think you loved about it or what, what drew you to taking it so seriously within that first year? Yeah. So In, in, before I like started running in gym class, we would occasionally have track and field units and you could throw the shot put or long jump or stuff. And I was, you know, just horrible at all that stuff. Um, but one option was you could just sort of run around the perimeter of the school grounds for whatever long gym class lasts 20 or 30 minutes or whatever. And I did that and I would do that and I thought, oh, I, I enjoyed it. And it was, I enjoyed it. Like, um, like I, I just, I enjoyed it. I was in Boy Scouts at the time and, you know, we would go on these long hikes and I, you know, enjoyed those. Um, and then one of my sisters was friends with this guy who was the state champion at cross country, you know, like five years old or so. 
And in my town, there was like a 20 mile walk for charity. And my father and I would always do that. And this guy and a couple other guys from the team ran it. And I thought that was so cool, you know, that, that you would just like have the ability to like be so independent, you know, and just sort of in control of, of, of just to be that capable, you know, I thought that was so cool. So that's, I, that's what I decided. I'm going to, I'm going to go out for cross country so I can like be like that sort of thing. And then when I started running, um, when I actually started doing it, um, I, I just enjoyed, <laughs> enjoyed getting out of the house for one thing. Um, and I just, you know, I just enjoyed the, just the motion and the feeling I had during and the feeling I had after. And, um, uh, I, yeah. And I was always a very sort of, um, pent up sort of kid, you know, and didn't have a lot of outlets. And this was like a really good outlet, um, that I didn't get through team sports or whatever, cause I'm horrible at that stuff, you know? Um, so a lot of things I enjoyed about it. And then once I got to on the team and made a couple friends on the team, then that whole aspect of, you know, running, spending time with friends in this thing added a whole nother level of richness. Know, yeah. 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 Did you ever get to do that 20 mile loop? Via, um, with not, I didn't, I didn't seek out to do that. It was, it turned out that much of like my sort of main courses from my parents' house were over a lot of that. Yeah. Um, I, my thing was uh, sort of my version of that was like, by the time I was in high school, some of my sisters lived, you know, in towns, maybe like 15 or 20 miles away. And like, if we were having a family event at their house, I would run to their house, you know, and my parents would bring my, my clothing for me. Um, and I just thought that was so cool to be like, yeah, yeah, I'm running, you know, I'm running to Telson, Maryland, you know, that's and, the best Yeah, destination runs are the best. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then there's food there for you. Yeah. Food and, and yeah. And, and good people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's great. It's great. And so I've reading kind of your experiences on writing. It sounds like in, you've had, you know, a huge progression as a runner you were describing in high school, like in the mile, your time eventually ended up becoming, you know, the time you're running sub that pace in a 10 K. Like there was just a lot of growth. It sounds like in development for you as a runner through the discipline. Right. Yeah. To the practice of running. Yeah. So I, I'm, I was never, I, I was never like really good. I was, you know, above average. Um, so in high school, when I graduated, uh, I say mile to mile, but of course it's 1600, 3200 meters. So I, when I graduated my time, my best were 447 and 1016, which are, you know, better than average, but certainly nothing you know, spectacular. Um, and that was with, I mean, I ran a lot in high school. I, maybe I would have been faster at the shorter stuff if I ran less, but you know, my friends and I like did road races in high school and I ran a marathon in high school and all that sort of stuff. But it wasn't like I ran these pretty mediocre times because I was running 15 miles a week. I mean, I ran like 70 miles a week in high school. Um, in college, I was not I was even worse, like relative to the people, you know, I was sort of allowed to have a locker, um, 
but I, I didn't score a point in cross country or track in four years of college. Um, just liked it. And they were nice enough to let me just have a locker and, you know, uh, run with the team or try to try to run with the team. And then I just, you know, I just kept at it. And so in my late twenties, you know, for a few years, I was like, you know, pretty good on a, you know, sort of local level, you know, like sub 31 10 K like I would have been a really, really good woman, like an Olympian woman. Um, Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but that was just by virtue of, you know, at that point, you know, 12, 10 or 12 years of, you know, 70 to hundred miles a week, you know, um, but doing that more so just cause I felt like doing it than because I have this goal of, you know, I'm going to, I want to run whatever time once, once I got to there, then, you know, once I got to like, like, well, I should try to break 31 minutes type thing for 10 K, but I, that's not like why five years earlier I had been running 80 miles a week, you know, I was just doing it to do it which is sort of what I do now, too. That idea of doing it to do it, I think, is really interesting. Because I think a lot of people don't understand it, especially people who aren't runners. I've experienced that, come across that barrier in my own life. Yeah. That that what you... Just you, do it because you love to do it. Yeah. And so you're just doing it, and you're expen- expending an enormous amount of time in the <laughs> mental space. Right doing it right. <laughs> whether it's the whole entire day you're planning your run or getting excited about it right yeah well so now it probably makes even less sense on a cost benefit analysis um i now i run like 60 i average like 60 miles a week and i do workouts and i do all the stuff that if someone were to look at what i do they would think that i'm training you know, but I'm not like this morning, you know, I ran for an hour and then I did drills and strides, but like, I almost never race and I'm really bad at racing now. Um, but it's just like something to do, um, that that's, that's, um, different and that is not being slumped in front of my laptop or bent over my phone or whatever. Of course, lots of people would say there's lots of other things you could be doing, but, um, you know, it's something I enjoy doing. Yeah. And so why can't I do what I enjoy doing? I'm right there with you. Yeah. I'm right there with you. When you look at the different distances you've raced and run, is there a certain one in particular that a memory of a race or a certain distance that you really have an affinity for? Uh, I was equally mediocre at, at everything except at the extremes. Like I've never run a good marathon despite being the co-author of a book called advanced marathoning. Um, and at shorter stuff, I'm unbelievable. Like even when I was good, you know, pretty good at 10 K through 10 miles, unbelievably bad at, at, at short stuff. Like, um, I've, I've never broken 30. I never broke 30 seconds. It's certainly not going to happen now. I never broke 30 seconds for 200 meters, which the people who I like when I was in my late twenties, like at my best, the people who I raced against, like they could do that, you know, they would do that in workouts, you know, and I never broke <laughs> 30 seconds and I tried, um, and you know, anything up through, like at about 5k, I started to get like, okay, this is not embarrassing. Like what my PR is. Um, so like 10k through half marathon, it was what I was better at on a consistent basis than I, yeah. Um, 
never ran a good, I, I ran some good 20 milers en route to marathon, but then always blew up spectacularly. So, uh, so that sort of middle ground was that middle ground. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting to me that different people, I think it's more than just the physical experience of running different distances, but I think it's a huge part of the mental experience of the kind of pain or the discomfort and navigating that at different distances. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sure one of the reasons I never ran a good marathon is that I'm, you know, I'm just not very tough in some, no, that's in some not, way. That's not <laughs> no, what no, I'm I didn't at. mean that. I'm not saying that's what you said, but that's that's what I'm saying. That it's just sort of like uh, it's it's can be easy to give up. Like, but I think the same could be argued of a five k. Like, I find the five the discomfort right. of a five k worse yeah, than the yeah. discomfort of a ten k. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. But that's just I think different people's kind of personal compass how it's oriented right yeah so for you you've had the experience of imagine running with a lot of different people through Mm -hmm. your work um in running times running world Mm -hmm. as well as throughout your teammates is there one person that stands out who's had a huge influence on your running or how you view it Hmm. um gosh i'm too selfish to say (laughs) think of one person probably um, I, I'm going to be a horrible person and say no. Um, I mean, certainly I've learned a lot from a ton of people and I've enjoyed and benefited from running with a ton of people, but I sort of feel like I would, I'm like, I would just do what I'm going to do anyway. <laughs> um, sorry, it's not a very good answer. No, there's um, no bad answers. Um, I mean, there's certainly people who like, you know, like, wow, that was a great, that was cool to run with so-and-so, but it's not like, you know, I then did stuff a lot differently because of running with so-and-so, you Mm. know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say by, from running with occasionally, uh, when I was not as slow as I am now, like occasionally running with, you know, good people while doing stories on them. Um, it, it reinforced what I sort of thought instinctually in that like really good people aren't out hammering every single day, you know, when it's time to go hard, they go hard. And when it's time to not go hard, they welcome the chance to, to relax a bit and just enjoy the run and, and get the miles in without beating themselves up. So, Could you take me to one person in particular that you saw that? Uh, Bill Rogers is like, even when he was the best in the world, if you looked at his training, a lot of it was, I mean, he was running a ton, but a lot of it was just like moderate effort, just getting miles in, getting miles in. He raced a lot, which sort of took the place of a lot of structured workouts. Um, but uh, yeah, that's one person who, you know, is a really good example of that. Um, whereas a friend of mine, um, who's one of my dear friends, but he's complete type A, um, who I ran with a lot, like when I was at my best, um, he's, he's this guy just like, like I th- he, he ran two fifteen in the marathon, but I think he could have been faster. He's one of these guys like checks splits along the way, you know, checks, you know, it's always focused on what pace we running, what pace are we running? And just like every, you know, the every day you should go as fast as you can was, is his, was, is his theory. And, um, you know, I don't know that that's correct. Most 
the weight of evidence from from the people who are faster than him is that that's not how most of them do it. Um, yeah. So like one time we were running an 11 mile loop from his house and uh, we went, we like made this turn at a place. It's like 45, 47 minutes into the run. And, you know, he looks at his watch because it's one of the places where he checks the splits. And he looks at his watch. He goes, huh. And I was like, what? He said, I was here six seconds faster yesterday. And I was like, oh, well, then we better fucking pick it up, you know. Um, so he's sort of the counter example, too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but he was also, his name is Jim Hage, in case anyone's wondering. In, in the late 80s, early 90s, he was the best road racer in D.C., so it was hard to argue against him. But, you know, I subsequently, through exposure to better people, learned that most people don't do it that way. Yeah. 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 I also think the mental fatigue you could get from pushing yourself, uh, like because then in those moments that you need to be able to go into the well, yeah. If you've already been like slightly depleting it on a day to day basis, yeah. Then how deep yeah. can you pull? Well, his his came out in terms of uh, <laughs> he uh, he 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 was distressed if he was six seconds late to the forty five minute mark of an eleven mile run, but then you know. The rest of his life, he's like habitually late for everything. So maybe the the pressure uh, he takes the pressure off in the rest of his life in terms of his approach to time. Yeah, yeah. One time, I one time he was one time we were supposed to run from his house, and somehow he was late. Like I got there before he did. I was like, "Well, you live here. How is it that you're late for you to be?" (laughs) I don't know. So that's amazing. Yeah. So you've said already a couple times, like your best years or your fastest years. Uh I think there's something interesting about that as like we age or as we grow times are changing Yeah. because your times change based on your age and your face of life. What is your relationship to that now? The idea that like you won't be able to PR in the 10 K of your PR. Well, yeah. Um, it's, I should be much farther along in accepting that. I I mean, I obviously accept that. I mean, that was, that was almost 25 years ago. So, um, but I still, it's still difficult to not like have this vision of, you know, how things were and how things felt during this few year period as sort of the norm when it was obviously the aberration, you know? And I mean, I, so I've been running for 37 years and those few years were like the aberration, but somehow this morning, you know, I mean, somehow it's still like, that's, that's how it should be, you know? So this morning I was running. So we're recording this interview the day before the beach to beacon 10 K is being held near my home in Maine. So there's a lot of really good people in town. And this morning I was running and, um, you know, this guy passes me and I knew it was somebody here for the race who even at my best, he would have been better than me, you know? And it's not like no one can pass me. People pass me all the time, but it was just sort of like, boy, I thought I was moving along pretty well. And that guy is like, you know, like in star Wars where they go into hyperspeed or whatever, you know, all of a sudden he passes me. And then all of a sudden he's like, wait, you out of sight, you know? And it's just like, Hmm. Okay. And then it's just hard. And this is horrible because he probably doesn't care anything about me because he passes everybody right every day. But then, and I don't care what people, and I think like, I wonder if he thinks like, well, well, I just passed this, you know, crippled old man, you know, barely making his way down the trail or I was, you know, whereas I felt like I'm I'm moving along pretty well, you know, so it's hard to um, match sort of 
the objective with like how I feel inside. Yeah. Um, but in terms of accepting that I'm never going to PR again, of course, that's long, 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 long ago. Yeah. As a master's athlete, do you, can, do you take in your master's PRs into account? No, that doesn't, no. I mean, so I'm 52. So the, you know, the couple of times when I really made an effort to set master's PRs was, you know, 10 years ago. Um, and it, yeah. And those just seem so arbitrary. Um, but of course, but you know, it's all arbitrary, but you know, there's something to me, at least there was always something different about, I've never run faster than this versus, well, I'm within X percent of whatever, you know? Yeah. But um, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. I appreciate your total honesty about it. It's, it's refreshing. <laughs> I think, uh, I mean, I think any runner and any athlete, I mean, you can relate to the feeling of like being passed. You know, and that experience of just like, wow, did the person who just passed me, like, what did they just see? You know, yeah, yeah. like <laughs> at the same time, I don't want to be completely depressing. I appreciate, I always loved running. I always appreciated running for what running brought, brings to my life, but I appreciate it more than ever now. Um, just because it's just working and, and just, you know, sort of, um, you know, it's, it's just such a, I, I appreciate you know, just like hopefully with age, you appreciate other things that you may have take for granted early on. Um, you know, it's better that that guy passed me on the run this morning than, than that I was driving in my car and saw him running, you know? Yeah. And, that um, and I appreciate just the, uh, you know, just the, the opportunity, you know, the sort of the fact that running rewards regularity, you know, then means that it's, you know, that then I do it every day. And so then I appreciate that that's sort of built into the structure of running so that then every day I have an excuse to like get outside and, and, you know, enjoy movement and, and, and hopefully return, uh, a little less, uh, mentally frazzled or uptight than when I left. Yeah. Yeah. Running rewards regularity. I think that's a, that's a great phrase. <laughs> I mean, if people sp speak about the idea of consistency as king. Yes, definitely. And I feel like those are kind of can't come from almost the same source. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. To me. Yeah. There's a sense of structure that it gives to one's day as well as a release, which you're speaking to. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely yeah. can feel that as well in my own life for yeah. sure. Are you going to be running the beach to beacon tomorrow? I'm not. I'm not. Have you ever ran it? I've run it a few times. Yeah. It's, um, uh, well, I don't really race all that much anyway, but, um, it's, uh, unless you're up front, it's, um, it's a really big deal. There's like six, more than 6,000 people and you, um, you, it's sort of get, it's hard to race your best unless you're with the invited people up front, just because of the, the logistics of standing in place for 20 minutes after you've warmed up. All that sort of stuff, but mostly because I barely race at all. So why start there? And it's your local, it's your local race, which also can be sometimes intimidating to do something more locally where you're, where people know you. Oh, I don't care about that. You don't? Yeah, okay. Uh, Rock on. Yeah. I know you've spent time traveling with running, including visiting Kenya and spending yeah. some time there and you wrote about it. Yeah. 
what inspired that trip to go to E10? So, um, our the first summer that I lived here in Maine at the Beach to Beacon, um, a guy named Keith Dowling, who was a 213 marathoner back in the day, um, came and stayed with us. I knew of him from um, running with him a little bit in the D.C. area. So he came up and stayed with us. And it used to be that the Falmouth Road Race was the week after Beach to Beacon. So a lot of people would come up for Beach to Beacon and then sort of just stay in town until they travel down to Falmouth. And Keith was one such person. And so when I dropped him off to get his ride for the Falmouth Road Race, there was a guy, a local coach, who we were to start talking and he had been to Kenya and he's like, Oh, you have to go. It's really cheap, et cetera, et cetera. Once you, you know, once you get, once you get over there, you know, and I, you know, I wasn't as busy with work, um, as I am now. And I just thought, yeah, like I'm never going to, this will probably be my best opportunity to go. So, um, I then just started lining up, you know, assignments to pay for my expenses basically to get there. And then it turned out that I got enough assignments to then, um, cover my wife to go. Um, so she's a photographer. So, uh, I was there for all of December, 2004, and she was there for the first half of, of the month. Um, yeah. And like, it's not the sort of thing that would happen now probably. So it was, it was good timing. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I'd always, you know, it just seemed like I'd always, you know, you always just hear about how, what it, I just wanted to see what it was like, you know? Um, and I was able to sort of cover my expenses in doing so. So what was the biggest surprise to you? So, um, let's see several, uh, I didn't, I never saw anybody drink water. That was surprising. Um, uh, probably because they'd have to buy bottled water to safely drink it. So they, the only liquid I ever saw occasionally there would be like a soda, but it was just like tea. Um, uh, let's see back to this idea of like not going as hard as possible every day. The, the sometimes just the un- crazy, crazy slow, pace for some runs, um, which was, that was very eye opening. Um, like, okay. So where we were was in E10, which is the the epicenter and it's about 8,000 feet of elevation. And my wife understandably was self-conscious about running, you know, as a sort of tall, (laughs) pale white woman. Um, she wasn't, um, scared. She was just sort of self-conscious. So I would run with her when, she, you know, and, and she, and I remember that we, we went on one, you know, so we're not, you know, she, she's not like a, you know, daily runner or anything. And we're at 8,000 feet and all this sort of stuff. And so, you know, we're going very slow and we went out to one place, you know, we went out from where we were 15 minutes, turned around. And a couple of days later, I was doing a run with uh, Isaac Songok, who's run 12.48 for 5,000 meters, and Augustine Shoga, who's run 12.59 for 5,000 meters. And we got to the turnaround spot slower. I, you know, I, with them, I got to this turnaround spot slower than I did with, with my wife, Stacy. Um, so that was pretty eye-opening. And I ran, you know, I knew what their schedule was. Like, I knew when they'd be going slow, and so I would, you know, go with them. I would run with them on those. And 
there was one morning where we did what was probably like a 10k loop or six mile loop. I don't know, you know, and it took us like 51, 52 minutes. A few hours later, they, um, they warmed up. Then they did the same loop as a tempo run in 31 minutes. So they're running about whatever, maybe three minutes a mile faster on their tempo run than, you know, on this just sort of glorified shuffle warm-up jog. And then that afternoon, you know, they did a, they didn't, you know, a really just shuffling half hour and, you know, that I was just like, I got to add on and like pick it up. <laughs> but just the, the, the difference, the disparity in effort levels from run to run and the ability to just completely go really slow when, when warranted was, that was obviously very memorable because that was 12 years ago now. And my friend, Jim, the anal guy I was talking about earlier, I remember emailing him from the E10 post office and saying like, okay, so you would not, you know, I ran with these guys. I've been running with these guys. You would not believe how slow we ran on the morning run. And the thing is like, like it, it felt slow for me. So like, what does it feel like for them? You know, if they can break 13 minutes for 5k. And so my friend writes back like waste of time. They should have just slept in. They would have been better sleeping in. And I was like, well, I'm going to go with the guys who broke 13 minutes on this one, you know? <laughs> um, so that was very memorable. Um, wearing, wearing, um, like when I was there, it was December, but it's, you're at the equator. So it's not like it's ever cold other than when you do a workout, you, they would strip down to t-shirt and shorts, but otherwise full track suit. Even if, even though, you know, some of the like less established people might only have one such outfit. Um, cause there was this idea that, you know, it, that you wanted to sweat. And so they would run in full sort of rain suit type thing on most runs. Um, that was really weird to me, especially like one time I was going to do the four o'clock run with this, um, woman and her, this guy who was sort of her domestique training partner, you know, and she, at four o'clock, she's like, no, it's too hot. You know, let's wait. Um, and so we went at like five and so of course, but she, you know, they wore full sweats. Uh, uh, you know, I had to, so I have this photo where it's like, you know, they're in full sweats and I'm in t-shirt and shorts and, you know, um, so that was some of them. That was some of it. It was pretty, it was very cool. And the roads, you know, so you always hear about the, like, oh, the beautiful red clay roads. The roads are absolutely atrocious. Um, they're just like kind of carved out of the side of, they've just been like cut into the land. And so on each side, <clears throat> it's, um, it's not like a road here. It's not like a dirt road here. Like on each side is a sort of wall where it's been cut through. And it's just the road. I remember my first run there. I was like, no wonder Kenyans are so good at steeplechase and cross country because um, not only is it very up and down, up and down, up and down, but the road is like, you know, it's not flat. It's like very crowned and there's just ruts and rocks everywhere. So like you're so, like every step you're sort of like navigating, ad navigating, adjusting also like you do, you know, especially in steeplechase and cross country. Um, so that was very, I just had this vision of like, oh, I'll just be on this beautiful red clay road forever. And, um, you know, and trucks are going by kicking up all the dust and stuff, but, um, it was very cool. But, um, yeah, it's, it was a lot different than what I thought it would be, which is good.
Yeah. yeah, and you mentioned with those two male runners, yeah. you, you talked about the progression of their day, running three times a day. That, Some that, days, not all days, yeah. What is the, the thought behind that, or what did you dig into that when you were there? Um, you know, that's what you do. I mean, why do you run twice a day? Some days they only ran twice. This was mostly, they ran three times a day, mostly on workout days. So they would, you know, at 6 or 6.30, it would be... Just, just a glorified stumble, basically. You know, to wake up and loosen up, and um, then the hard workout would be at like ten thirty in the morning, and then another glorified stumble at like four o'clock. But some days was just two runs, and some days was just one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I've heard a lot of people doubling, but I've never heard of tripling. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So was, that was maybe two or three times a week that okay. they did that. Yeah. I tried, yeah, so like 10 years before I went, I had heard, like when Kenyans first, you know, started showing up at road races a lot in the early 90s, um, you know, then it was sort of presented as like everybody runs three times a day, which is not the case. Um, but I was like, okay, that's not, so I started, I tried that and I, I could never figure out, like, I never, it was really weird because like I would run seven miles before work and then I'd run seven miles you know, in the middle of the day, and then I'd run seven miles after work. And I was like, well, what was this day? Because, you know, it wasn't an easy day, but it was just sort of like, it was just, I never figured out a way to make it work, which I was happy to, because that seemed, it was just a little much three times a day while you're working. It was a little much. Yeah. yeah. When was your first job that involved writing? Uh, writing. Like in a more formal way. I mean, I feel like every job somehow sure. involves writing, but... Um, there's a place that's now called the American Running Association, but at the time it was called the American Running and Fitness Association. And so I got a job there as an editor in 1991? 1991, yeah. So that was, that was only my second office job and the first one where there was writing involved. And what drew you to working for them? Uh, luck. Um, I was a proofreader in a public accounting for, at a public accounting firm in Bethesda, Maryland, and um, I saw that in Bethesda, Maryland, this organization, which I'd never heard of, existed. And so I wrote to them and said, "Here's what I think I can do. I have no relevant experience, but here's what I think I can do." And they probably because they have they had such a low budget that they're like oh sure sure come on work for us for sixteen thousand dollars a year that'd be great um so that's i i just happened to, and then i started while there then started um writing freelance articles for running times and runner's world and so in 93 sort of um both places contacted me about you know maybe working for them and i went to running times and you were the editor of Running Times? I, well, I was not, not, I wasn't hired by Running Times. I was hired as associate editor and it was a small staff. So basically there were two of us as full-time editorial staff. And um, after about a year, the guy who was the editor uh, quit um, over the phone. So suddenly I was, it was more editor by default rather than like editor in chief. So then I was editor for a couple of years until I quit. 
until you quit. And then yeah. now you're working as senior content editor for Runner's World Online. Yeah. Right. And what does that even mean? Like, what is your That's name? That's a really good question. Um, I, it's, it's a variety of stuff. It varies. For example, this month with the Olympics about to start, most of my work, all, pretty much all my work will be focused on Olympic coverage in a non in a more typical month, it's more of a variety of um, some news writing, some sort of training article writing, some stuff that is sort of um, like what we call them topic pages, you know, sort of like a Wikipedia type thing. So hopefully if one Googles some common running phrase, hopefully the runner's world page for that phrase comes up up top and the person finds that page to be a helpful uh, comprehensive guide to that topic and as far as the olympics go yeah they're fast approaching is yeah. there a certain race or an athlete you're really excited to watch um well you know you it's hard not to like meb kofleski um i hope he i hope he has a great final time at the mayor at the olympics you know that that he deserves i i think he'll be top 10 um i you know it's hard to think of a time when he's been healthy before a race that he hasn't that he's then run poorly and as far as i know he's healthy and been training well so i would think he'll sort of move his way up and get finish in the top 10 and meb and you co-author oh oh sorry and i also um i really have uh I've I've had some uh, communication with Kate Grace, who won the 800 at the Olympic trials, and um, she seems like a just a really interesting person, independent of running, and that's always nice to see. So uh, I hope she does well too. Me I mean, too. obviously, I hope everybody does yeah. well, but I will be watching her race with interest also. Me too. Yeah. Me too. Yeah, Kate's awesome. Yeah. She's been on the podcast a while ago. Okay. As far as Meb goes, I know you yeah. co-authored a book with Meb yeah. called Meb is for Mortals. Meb for Mortals. Meb for Mortals, yes. sorry. Um, tell me a little bit about how that came up. Why did you guys decide to collaborate and what was? how did you write co-author a book? Um, okay. Well, here you go. Here's the, not that anyone cares, but here's the, the first public telling of my my <laughs> my weaseling into this book. So Meb had won Boston in 2014. And about a week and a half later, he was in, so Runner's World is owned by Rodale, which also publishes Men's Health and a couple of, you know, other magazines. So Meb was in the Rodale offices in New York. And so I went to New York for the day to do an article, you know, like interview Meb, do an article, like here's how Meb trained to win the Boston Marathon. And I had an ulterior motive in that I wanted to see if he wanted to do a book together. And it seemed that you know, somebody should do a book with Meb to come out before Boston 2015 when he, when he, um, you know, would be defending his title. And, um, and I figured I should be that person. Why not? And so we talked about a book for like 30 seconds before we started our formal interview. And then our interview went long and, you know, he was sort of on this victory tour where he was going around all these different places. And the person who was, um, you know, his seeing him to his different appointments was like, we already went long, you know, we need to get going. And I thought, oh, I, uh, you know, like I just need like two more minutes, but I didn't want to, you know, 
be rude or anything. So, so instead I was manipulative. Um, you know, so he's on this victory tour, right? And so he hadn't been home, like, since he'd won Boston. It had been, like, 10 days or something. And he's just meeting all these people everywhere. And so he's carrying around a little, you know, uh, travel thing of hand sanitizer because he's shaking hands everywhere. And he's, like, and they're on his way out, and he's like, oh, I need some more hand sanitizer, you know, does anybody know where the hand sanitizer is? And I was like, oh, yeah, I'll show you. It's like, I've never been in this office before. I had no idea where the hand sanitizer was. But I figured while we're walking through the halls, I would have my chance to, you know, to say, hey, so you want to blah, 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 blah. And luckily, I, I found the hand, sanitizer, hand sanitizer and without looking like, you know, without looking like I didn't know what I was doing. And um, so we talked about it real briefly then. And then, um, you know, Rodale was very supportive they Rodale published the book, um, and it all very, happened very, very quickly, as it, as it needed to, for a book to be published, you know, in time for the next Boston Marathon. The process itself was was great. Um, he was uh, he's you know he's known for his uh, professionalism and meticulousness and attention to detail in his running, and he's like that in his when when we worked together. We would, um, I mean, he was crazy busy. Um, we would schedule, you know, like one, one and a half hour phone calls two or three times a week. I would say, we'll talk about such and such. I would send them very broad questions beforehand. Um, but of course, as you know, as an interviewer, you don't want to just stick to a rigid, uh, set of questions. And, um, and so, you know, we would just, we would talk, um, I would, my job was to sort of get him to say, here's what I do, here's why I do it, and here's um, how regular runners can implement it in their program. And that was the process. Um, it was great because th uh, at the end of a very, very intense process, uh, his brother, Howie, who was his agent, was also you know involved pretty heavily once we got to, like, um, reviewing chapters and stuff and to work on a really, really intensive process uh, and to like and respect people more at the end of that process is not always the case. And that was, that was the case with them. Um, so that was, it was, it was a great, I was very proud to um, be involved in that process. Not, um, not because, Oh, I, I'm, you know, not because, Oh, me and Meb, but just, it was proud that, you know, it seemed like we all brought out the best in, in each other. Uh, which is satisfying, you know, regardless of uh, whether the book sells well or something. And, it, and then it happened to sell well, so that was gratifying, too. Yeah. And in the process, did you ever get to see Meb in person after that hand sanitizer meeting? Just, um, just actually, he ran Beach to Beacon that year. So he stayed around uh, the area for a few days, and um, so he came here my house where we're recording this interview, we came here a couple times. Um, and we just sort of talked through a couple things in, you know, mostly it was him demonstrating about 812 different exercises that he does. Um, but that was the only time. And so then I didn't see him again until after <clears throat> the New York city marathon that year, like after he had, you know, like he had run the race and then come into the place where the media thing was. And that was the first we'd, seen each other since then. 
So I asked you this question in regards to Kenyon running about the idea of surprises. Yeah. But I know you were speaking to with Meb, like there's a certain level of professionalism with him that it sounds like you knew before you even started working with him. But what would mm-hmm. you say you were surprised by in learning from him and his approach to running <laughs> or life? Um, well, so the, 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 the thing that's most stuck with me is the idea that um, there's always something you can improve on. Um, and it might not be how fast you run 200 meter repeats, but it might be that you're, you know, you've let some aspect of your form get bad, get worse, and there's something you can do about it. So there's all these, just that as a sort of general guiding principle was, um, wasn't surprising, but it's, that's the thing that is most stuck with me, um, is, is like, yeah, I, I mean, it sounds like I'm always complaining about getting slow, but there are things I can do to slow the rate of slowing. Um, and that's, that's, uh, I find that motivating. The, the most surprising thing <laughs> was, um, so he gave me access to his, um, like, like training stuff, you know, that he would, from his GPS that he would upload. And <laughs> Mepka Flesky, uh, this is very surprising to me. That's um, he if he's at the end of a run and his GPS says nine point eight seven. Well, then you can see on the map where he like runs down the street and back till it says exactly ten point zero or twelve point zero or something. <laughs> I thought that was great. I was like, no, you're too good to be like that. But obviously, <laughs> uh, he knows what he's doing. But I thought that was great because I I associate that more with sort of. Um, people who aren't as are one of the best American runners ever. So that was great to see. Um, yeah, that was the most surprising. I don't mean that in a bad way. It was just very, no, and you mentioned it was, it. it's mentioned in the book. You guys, oh yeah? You, yeah, you write about it in the book. It's very small. I was reading the book. <laughs> it was just very funny to see. Yeah, no, it is. It's a great point. On my college team, there was there was the two types of runners. There was yeah. the runners who were going to have to yeah. do the extra lap around the parking lot. Yeah, yeah. As if people... as if the watch is completely accurate. Exactly. Yeah. But I think it's I it's this itch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's really really great. As far as deciding what topics you get to write on for Runner's World, do you have say in that? Do you create what you write, or do people give you the inspiration? It's, um, there's, there's, I, it's in collaboration with um, pe- editors who work in Emmaus, Pennsylvania, where Runner's World is based. Um, some, some of the training stuff, it's more expected that I would be the one sort of suggesting topics. Some of the sort of... Um, you know, topic page type stuff is based more on what will best help, um, you know, what, what reader, what indications we have that readers are most interested in. Yeah. And if you, do you have another book that you're wanting to write? Um, I, yes. So yeah, I'm of course doing nothing about it, but, um, yeah, so I want to write the book I most want to write, uh, in case any publishers are listening, is I, I want to write a book about the intersection of running and depression and, um, you know, what running running and what running can do, what running can't do, and just sort of looking at the intersection of those, those two topics in as many ways, from as many angles as possible. Um, 
I think that it's, uh, I find it personally interesting. I, I have dysthymia, which is sort of a chronic low-grade depression that I've had my whole life. Um, and so I have a lot of experience with the two topics <laughs> and how they um, help and can help each other. And I think that um, I might be wrong, but I think that there are a lot of people who are drawn to running in part because of how it helps them um, with, you know, maybe not with, with such things and that such a book could be helpful or at least interesting to a lot of people. That's the book I most want to write. Yeah. yeah. I hope you get to write it. Um, it has personal resonance for me as well. Where do you feel like in your life, what has running given you to either provide relief from depression or how have they kind of showed up in your own life in the relationship to one another? So, well, okay. So on a, just a daily basis, there's, you know, the relief that, come that, you know, you usually feel better after a run. Um, and I would think that that has a cumulative effect over time. Um, you know, in the way that taking a small dose of medicine might help on one day, but probably could have a cumulative effect over a long period of time. Uh, I would certainly be in a much more miserable person to live with, uh, if I didn't if I hadn't discovered running, um, and, or, or some other way to, you know, um, provide that outlet. Uh, there have been times, um, when running was a way, this is when I could, this is when I was setting PRs was a time of like, okay, well, at least I have control over this aspect of my life or, you know, this is something I can, uh, focus on and, um, feel like I'm, feel like something, you know, I can sort of uh, control doesn't sound quite right, but you know, that is something that I can, uh, make progress on and, and, and get some satisfaction from. Um, certainly there have been times where, um, the conversations that I have with friends on runs is a form of therapy. Um, and, and, you know, and then just the aspect of like, okay, you know, like this is, this was like when I first started running and first started realizing that I was, you know, maybe I, I didn't know at the time, but in retrospect, you know, when I first started like, really, Oh, <laughs> I'm, you know, I have this condition or whatever. Um, like, what is the point? You know, I would just like, what is the point of why I'm, why am I getting up today? You know, sort of thing. And like, why are we all getting up today? Um, I was like, well, at least I've, you know, well, I'll get 15 miles in. There's that. Uh, so that's, you know, it's sort of a distraction probably, but, um, but then again, like maybe that, maybe that is the point just to find something that you enjoy uh, and that you're not hurting anybody by doing and makes you feel better. Yeah. yeah. It gives, it gives life. I, I found for myself, it gives purpose to my life. Mm-hmm. In that meaning, and that can be like a guiding force in times of darkness and yeah. times of uncertainty. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Have you had the experience of talking with a lot of other runners who have battled depression and seen that this is a theme in the running community? Mm, that would be overstating it. Yeah, I'm, I haven't. I, I certainly know a lot of people, and, and including some friends who, um, 
you know, we've, we've talked about it. I, you know, I don't have, I don't have stats. Um, that'd be part of the process of writing the book, but you know, if, if supposedly, you know, a, a not insignificant percentage of Americans are on antidepressants. And, um, I think the demographics of the people who are on antidepressants aren't completely separated from the demographics of running. Um, there's that. Um, and I think that there, uh, there's some as there's some section of the running community, I think, who maybe has a propensity towards sort of self-destructive behavior. Um, and so there could be an overlap there, um, self-destructive through a few different ways, including like substance abuse. Um, so there could be some overlap there, but I don't know. I'm just hypothesizing. Yeah, no, or it's... maybe universalizing, but, um, <laughs> I think there's an addictive component. That's, that's a better way. Running. That's a better way of saying it, that, that it, um, attracts, it, it can attract people with addictive type personalities and those personality traits can also play out in other ways. Very much so. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. really hope you'll get the opportunity to write the book. Yeah. Yeah, that would be really cool. What would it take for you to write the book? Uh, not being lazy. Um, so, you know, you have to, the, the, the sort of standard procedure is you prepare a book proposal, which uh, includes, in this case, would include fairly significant uh, sample material. And so it's this catch-22 of like, well, I, like I, I need to work and make money um, and therefore I don't have the time or mental energy for this thing that I, you know, it's hard to, can be hard to justify spending the time on this thing that might not ever do, but it is really something I should do. But yeah. that the, the, the sticking point at this point is producing a proposal with enough sample material that then uh, an agent would then be able to show it around to publishers and in the hope of finding someone interested in publishing it. I think that tension is so real for so many people. That of like, I have to make money and support myself, but I also have this other thing, this yeah. project that like is burning in my heart that yeah. I want to do, Yeah, but and it's really hard to carve out the time to do right, it. Right, right. Or just like, yeah, like, yeah, find like maybe on a run, find like a month's worth of money in a bag, you know, so then you can just sort of set, set normal work aside for the time that you would be um, writing, working on this thing. Totally. Yeah. And so in your life with writing, do you, do you set your own deadlines or those deadlines set by your editorial team? How, uh, did, how does the flow of it go? Other people set deadlines. I would, I would never get anything done. Um, I would never get any writing done without the deadlines. And this week, what are you working on that's exciting you or frustrating you? Um, I took a staycation this week, so not much. This week I worked on not working. Good. Yeah. I love that idea of a staycation because we can think of like having to go on a vacation is so expensive, but you can also just be in your house, be in your world and unplug. Yeah. 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 So like Tuesday on Tuesday, I just, um, puttered around till I went and drove half hour from here and ran on some nice trails for hour and a half. And then, you know, went and got a coffee and and all of a sudden, it's like 3 p.m., you know? <laughs> like, and then it's like, yeah. yeah. I can handle this. So, yeah. 
That's awesome. Yeah. And you live in Portland, Maine. Where is your favorite place to run in the round here? Um, so I live in um, South Portland, which is actually a separate town. Um, over, and we are right next to Cape Elizabeth, Maine, where Joan Benoit went to high school. And there are lots of um, nice trails that are accessible about six months out of the year. Otherwise, they're covered by leaves or snow. Um, so in the summer, most of my running, when I'm not running with others, but sometimes when I'm running with others, um, are in these single track trails. If people are familiar with the Beach to Beacon course, they're sort of hidden in woods like near the Beach to Beacon course. Um, so that's my favorite place, just and to be on trails um, and just sort of enjoy the aesthetic experience and try not to trip. They're very... Uh, very New Englandy trails, lots of roots and rocks and stuff, and single track. And do you have a main training partner in this area or a group? I have a few. Um, a few. Um, I, I. It's kind of weird. I'm not really sure how this happened, but I pretty much run only with women. Um, and yeah, so there's a few women who you know were usually. Um, you know, go long on the weekends and probably one of a day during the work week I run with. That's, that's cool. I think that's, it's kind of cool how I think with running, it brings it can, it, you will end up running with people who you might not encounter in that. Of course. Areas of right. Your right. Life. So probably my, the, the person I run with the most, uh, is my friend Meredith, who is, you know, she's a 37 year old mother of a two year old and a social worker. Like, why would I, I would never, you know, I would never know, like, what in what other realm would I, like, become very good friends with a 37-year-old mother of two as a social worker, you know? Um, so, yeah, it's great. I love that. Yeah. I feel like we've, we've covered a lot of different things. Is there anything I haven't brought up or something that you'd like to bring to the mic? Um, gosh, uh, it's hard to produce on command. <laughs> um, no, no, that's, that's plenty. Have you ever been interviewed for this long? I know you're usually on the other side of the mic. For this long? I I don't think so. I was on um, the Tom Ashbrook show on point maybe like six years ago. And it was an hour long show, but there were other people on. And we were not talking about me. Um, so, no, this would be this would be my my PR your PR. Oh my God. I love it. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. What would you say as an interviewer? Because yeah. you do do a lot of interviewing and you've done that a lot. Right. What do you think? Maybe. Yeah. What do you think makes a good interviewer? Or what do you think of? Cause I get the, I get emails a lot from people wanting to start podcasts and wanting to start being an interviewer. Mm -hmm. What kind of advice do you give to people who want to interview? Wow. Well, I've never been asked by an interviewer how to do an interview. That's so, kind of, this is see. a little bizarre, but... Um, it's very meta. Um, <laughs> so meta. Well, so you've obviously done your homework, and I think that's key. Um, to, know, to know enough to know what questions are relevant and what questions aren't relevant, and then to know enough to know when an answer merits uh, follow-up, and to know enough to know when to let a person talk <laughs> and um and i think i said this earlier like not being bound by the script that you may have come up with in your head because who knows what people might start talking about um but i think the key thing is to 
do your subject the courtesy of doing your homework um, so that, you know, your questions can be more, you know, so were you happy to win the Olympics type thing, you know, to, to, to do enough homework to be able to hopefully come up with questions that get people to think more than, you know, just sort of, you know, sort of things that more that can produce more rote answers, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's definitely brilliant. You mentioned that racing is not something that you have big aspirations for. Are there any races that, that are like bucket list races? They're like, oh, I want to go to that place. So I've always it. wanted to do the, there's a marathon in the red, like, I think it's called Avenue of the Giants in California. Yeah. In Humboldt County. Uh, okay. Right? Uh, yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. Um, that seems like that would be pretty cool. Like just to, just to see all this, you know, to see, assuming that it goes through, you know, I, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you go through like the redwoods and for like three miles out of 26, but it seems like that'd be pretty cool. I'd like to do, um, at some point like a trail ultra, um, that's like in a nice trail. <laughs> um, not Pineland trail not festival. Pineland. Right. Right. <laughs> not running around a farm. Yeah. Um, and I don't know where that is, you know, because, oh. because, well, because like without it be, I've, I have such, my, my specifications are so narrow, like, but I, it, it wouldn't be good for it to be at altitude because I would, you know, um, but a, a nice trail ultra where I would not care about the time, but I would just, you know, a reason to run an ultra distance in a, in a really, really cool trail setting would be, would be good. Um, and I still, I have a really, really good friend who lives in Manhattan and we always talk about running the New York city marathon together just to see what it's like. Um, that'd be fun just to, you know, run through it, not racing just to see what it's like. Um, I can't think of many more. I had the opportunity to interview Bobby Gibb, uh-huh. who's the 1966, yeah. um, first woman to run the Boston marathon. And she was saying that the New York marathon course is a lot easier than the Boston marathon huh. course. Okay. <laughs> what was her recount of it? And I know you've run Boston. What does the Boston marathon, what do you either as a spectator or a runner, what does it mean to you? Or why do you feel like people also are so drawn to it? Um, those are a lot of loaded questions. Yeah. Right there. Um, I've only ran it once okay. uh, in the hundredth running in 96. Um, why do people like Boston? I mean, so I think that there is, I think this is really good. I think that there is a bit of a pendulum swing away. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Pendulum swing toward performance oriented running. Um, as you know, as people who, who got into the sport, on a more participatory basis have stuck with it. Some people have discovered that there can be satisfaction in, in the sort of more performance oriented aspect of the sport. And I think that's reflected in, um, the number of people who are now qualifying for and registering or trying to register for the Boston marathon. Um, and I think that's good, you know, because there's so many different ways to be a runner. And so like, why, what it, how does it hurt anybody if some people become interested in the performance aspect of the sport? 
so I I would think that that's got to be a big pull. Is is this like I can't just sign up? You know, it's not just about like you know did I did I get to my computer at the right time to sign up? You know, it's like I earned being here. You have to here. work for it. Yeah, yeah. That's probably I would think that's a big part of it. Yeah, I'm yeah. sorry that I thought you'd run it more than one time because I read on your blog you're hoping to run it in 2015, correct? Twenty um, twenty. 14, I was hoping to run it. So I, I had foot surgery in April of 2013. And so I wanted to run it in 2014, um, partly as sort of like, you know, a year later, hey, I can com- comfortably cover the distance. But then given the bombings in 2013, I also thought it was just going to be, an, I, I thought it 2014 would be like just an amazing experience to be part of that. And, you know, from all accounts, it was. <laughs> and the only other time I ran it was 96 when it was the 100th running, which was, you know, sort of the previous version of the above and beyond Boston year. And that was really, really cool. And so I thought it would be fun to be part of that again. But I, on my last long run, two weeks before, uh, the the foot that I didn't have surgery on started bothering me. And, um, and uh, I thought it's I've made such progress coming back from my foot surgery it's not worth um not worth getting myself in trouble again so I didn't run um but it worked out well because that was the year Meb won and uh I wound up doing the first non-tv interview with him like afterwards and then that sort of set in motion us doing a book together so it all worked out pretty well it's amazing how sometimes the universe works like that yeah and yeah. on your blog, you share books you've read. Yeah. And I love that. And the uh, way in which you market them. Yes, meh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So tell me, how did that start to share about the books you read? Um, that was just sort of... It's That's just more... Um, that was more I started wondering, like, well, how many books a year... How many books do I read a year, you know? Um because then I started thinking, because I, when I started doing it, I was like, okay, I, I don't know how, I, maybe I start doing it like when I turned 50 or something. And I was like, okay, so if I have 35 more years and I read 30 more, bo- 30 books a year or something like that, I was like, wow, that's only whatever that is, thousand, another thousand books in my life, you know, like I better choose wisely. Um, and so I just started, but I didn't know, like, do I read 30 books a year? I don't know. You know, so I just start I start keeping track. So I just write down the books that I've read. And, um, then I figured I'll put them up. Maybe somebody else might see a book. Maybe somebody else might see like, Oh, I, you know, maybe that's worth reading or maybe I'll, or more selfishly, maybe I'll hear from people. If you like such and such, then, then you'll like such and such. I never have, but hopefully at some point people will. Yeah. I think you're probably going to get that with the trail ultras. I have a lot of listeners who are trail ultra runners. So okay. They, I'm good. going to use this as an invitation yeah, yeah. to let you know <laughs> good. what are good, smooth trails. Good. 50 miler would be good. That's not an ultra. That's not an altitude. Yeah. 50 miler would be nice. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Well, we, I think we surpassed the PR. <laughs> okay. Good. Thank you so much, Scott, for your time. Thank you. I found Scott's honesty so refreshing and what he's learned from a life devoted to running and writing. If you haven't already looked Scott up online, you'll find hundreds of articles he's written, and I'd highly recommend you check out his recent book he co-authored, Meb for Mortals. 
If you also think Scott should pursue writing a book on the intersection between depression and running, reach out to him on Twitter. His handle is at M-E Scott Douglas, which I'll also link to in this episode's show notes. Three ways you can help me continue to produce the highest quality Rue podcast for you every week. One is simply to share the podcast with your community. Maybe you do it on Twitter, Instagram, share it directly with your running buddy or your friends. The more people that listen to Rue, the greater reach these conversations have. The second way you've definitely heard me share about before, it's going to take you less than two minutes, and that's to leave a review of the podcast on iTunes. You can do it from your phone, click on the reviews tab, and even a one-sentence review makes a world of difference. Reviews improve Rue's visibility on the iTunes interface so that more like-minded people can find the podcast and help Rue grow. The third and final way is to consider donating to Rue's Patreon page. You get to join an intimate Rue community with insider access into the podcast, exclusive content, and more. So visit patreon.com slash running on them to donate and know that any amount of support helps. Thank you to the 124 generous souls who've joined me on the Patreon journey. Thank you for tuning in today. Thank you for supporting Running on Ohm. Deep gratitude to each and every one of you. Yes, you. I'm your host, Julia Hanlon, and I hope you have a rue-filled day.